Hey, Steve here. Before I get into this episode, which I think you're going to like, I want to thank you for hanging around and listening to the podcast. This is the 100th episode. Wow. Who knew? When I started doing this, I figured I'd do a few podcasts and then the thing would fade into the sunset. Well, it has been fun, but it clearly hasn't faded and shows no sign of fading. I started the Natural Curiosity Project because of the attacks on science and journalism that began coincidentally, I'm sure, shortly after November of 2016. Science, after all, is science. You don't have to like it. But you do have to accept that to the extent that human knowledge is capable of pushing the boundaries of ignorance, it is correct and on a constant, unrelenting, aggressive mission to know more, to push the boundaries of darkness, to enlighten humanity through discovery, and dare I say it, curiosity. And journalism? The single most important tenet enshrined in the Constitution of this country that frames what this country stands for is the protection of a free and independent press, a press that has the responsibility to question government at every turn, to make them uncomfortable when they deserve to be uncomfortable, to force them to toe the line and remember that the American experiment is based on one all-important message. The government serves the people, not the other way around. Justice Hugo Black, a former U.S. senator from Alabama, wrote this about the role of the press in this country during the Watergate and Pentagon Papers scandals. In the First Amendment, the Founding Fathers gave the free press the protection it must have to fulfill its essential role in our democracy. The press was to serve the governed, not the governors. The government's power to censor the press was abolished so that the press would remain forever free to censure the government. The press was protected so that it could bear the secrets of government and inform the people. Only a free and unrestrained press can effectively expose deception in government. And paramount among the responsibilities of a free press is the duty to prevent any part of the government from deceiving the people and sending them off to distant lands to die of foreign fevers and foreign shot and shell. In my view, Far from deserving condemnation for their courageous reporting, the New York Times, the Washington Post, and other newspapers should be commended for serving the purpose that the Founding Fathers saw so clearly. In revealing the workings of government that led to the Vietnam War, the newspapers nobly did precisely that which the Founders hoped and trusted they would do. So, I went on a journey. I began by asking people, what they wanted to know. I asked them what they would like me to explore, to dig into, and I got answers. Some of them were very specific. Others were much more general, but I answered them all, and the feedback has been terrific. And in the truest sense of curiosity's mandate, each topic led to others, and I followed every one of them down the rabbit hole of knowledge. And that's why this is episode number 100, and why I have no fewer than 25 more already recorded and ready to be produced like this one. Those of you who've been with me from the beginning may remember episode number three, which was about Kipling's story, The Elephant Child. In that episode, I enlisted my daughter Christina to read a small piece of the story. 
In the high and far-off times, the elephant, O oh best beloved, had no trunk. He had only a blackish, bulgy nose, as big as a boot, that he could wriggle about from side to side, but he couldn't pick things up with it. But there was one elephant, a new elephant, an elephant's child, who was full of satiable curiosity, and that means he asked ever so many questions. And he lived in Africa, and he filled all Africa with his satiable curiosities. He asked his tall aunt, the ostrich, why her tail feathers grew just so, and his tall aunt, the ostrich, spanked him with her hard, hard claw. He asked his tall uncle, the giraffe, what made his skin spotty, and his tall uncle, the giraffe, spanked him with his hard, hard hoof. And still he was full of satiable curiosity. He asked his broad aunt, the hippopotamus, why her eyes were red. And his broad aunt, the hippopotamus, spanked him with her broad, broad hoof. And he asked his hairy uncle, the baboon, why melons tasted just so. And his hairy uncle, the baboon, spanked him with his hairy, hairy paw. And still he was full of satiable curiosity. Satiable curiosity. I hope you've all become a little bit more like the elephant's child from listening to the Natural Curiosity Project, or perhaps better said, the Natural Curtiosity Project. Thanks for listening. It means so much to me. Now, let's get into this episode. In those formative years between the time I graduated from college and joined Pacific Bell, what my parents called my real job, I was an owner in a scuba diving business. I didn't know what I wanted to do in terms of a career. In fact, I wasn't even to the point yet where I even wanted one. But I loved the ocean, I loved everything in it, and I loved to dive. So that seemed like a good choice. I taught diving, I filmed and photographed underwater, and somewhere along the way, I wrote my first book. It was called Commotion in the Ocean, a Technical Diving Manual. I didn't make any money to speak of in that job, but when I think about it all these years later... I realized that I walked away with something that was far more valuable. I discovered who I was. I came to understand that I'm a teacher and a writer and a speaker. Doing those things I discovered makes me deliriously happy. I developed confidence. I found myself and I found my voice. In those days, scuba lessons were eight weeks long. Classes met each week and the lessons alternated between the classroom when the students learned the theory of diving and pool sessions where they learned the skills that would make their ocean dives a safe and enjoyable experience. Halfway through the program, they got their first opportunity to jump in the ocean. Early on a Saturday morning, we'd pack up our gear and make the two-hour drive north over the Golden Gate, past Point Reyes and Dillon Beach and Bodega Bay and Jenner-by-the-Sea, all the way to Salt Point State Park. And there, in the protected waters of Stump Beach Cove, students would get their first taste of diving. Now, there were no tanks involved on this first dive. We were just free diving, and the main goal was to get these new divers comfortable entering and leaving the water with waves breaking around them, let them get tangled up in the kelp, and make them feel safe while bouncing around on the boisterous waters of the northern California coast. In full wetsuits, masks and fins, and buoyancy vests, they couldn't sink if they wanted to. The worst danger they faced was feeding the fish, what divers call seasickness. The days were long and exciting and exhausting. 
When evening fell, we left the beach and headed to one of the many campgrounds in the area where we cooked and ate dinner together and listened to the group of newly minted divers as they talked breathlessly about the experience they'd had that day. And then, predictably, because it happened every time, they hit a wall. Their energy reserves, which had been running at full capacity since early morning, ran dry. As one, they retreated to their tents and were sleeping deeply within five minutes, usually by eight o'clock, which gave us, the instructors, time to enjoy the evening. On one of those trips, we stayed at a campsite that sat high up on a cliff overlooking the ocean. A few yards offshore was a gigantic wash rock, a huge monolith that stood as high as the cliff we were on. As we watched, a Japanese family made their way carefully to the bottom of the cliff, carrying lanterns and poke pole equipment to fish for eels. Their swinging lanterns created great shadow sheets that washed over the rock, creating the illusion that the rock was moving, like a great prehistoric beast. We sat there, drinking beer, lined up on the edge of the cliff, silently watching. And then, it happened. From off in the distance, rumbling across the fog-covered black water, a monster called. It was a foghorn, of course, but combined with the illusion of the lumbering, shadow-washed rock in front of us, the beer, and the fact that we were tired and sunburned, it was, at that moment, among the most terrifying sounds I had ever heard. struck me. I went to my tent and grabbed the book I was reading by one of my favorite authors, Ray Bradbury. The book, The Golden Apples of the Sun, is a collection of short stories, one of which is called The Foghorn. In the story, a veteran lighthouse keeper and his younger colleagues stand at the top of their lighthouse, gazing across the dark sea as the light rotates, sweeping across the fog bank that covers the ocean, as the foghorn calls into the night. The older man tells his colleague a strange story about a creature that comes every year at that time, attracted by the foghorn. As they watch, the creature arrives, and a series of unintended consequences result. Please go read the story. Foghorns warn ships at sea that land is close by when they're fog-bound, And while those vessels may not be able to see the light of the lighthouse, they can hear its horn. By listening, they can determine the direction they don't want to go. They can be heard from 15 miles away. I mean, they operate in an ear-shattering 150 decibels. And since the horizon for a six-foot person is about three miles away, that gives a vessel plenty of time to change course if they need to. But as I sat on that cliff, watching the light and shadows set the rock to dancing, listening to the moan of the foghorn somewhere up the coast, I wondered what else might be hearing the sound, something dark and deep and lonely. Hey, thanks for dropping by. 
I'm Steve Shepard, the host of the Natural Curiosity Project, where we're committed to the idea that curiosity leads to discovery, discovery leads to knowledge, knowledge leads to insight, and insight leads to understanding. In every episode, we explore some topic that piqued our curiosity enough to make us want to share it with you. I hope you enjoy the journey. And if you did, I'd appreciate it if you'd leave a comment over at iTunes or SoundCloud, wherever you listen to the podcast. Thank you very much. We'll see you in the next episode. Thank you.